I've always felt like most of my life that no one was coming to help me, no one would understand me. Even when we're saying Black Lives Matter, they typically don't include trans people. So it's about stepping outside of catch-all apathy that doesn't catch all of us. And it's about really getting specific about uh, taking care of those who are the most vulnerable within our communities because when we're liberated, so will everyone else. This is Surviving Elections, a mini-series on Healing Justice podcast. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and we're focusing on the 2018 midterm elections and the intersections of electoral politics, social movements, and well-being and sustainability all month long. If you've been tuning into the series so far, you've heard leaders from Sunrise talk about the tensions between electoral and movement strategies. You've heard women campaign managers talk about the ways they're revolutionizing campaign culture. And last week, you heard about the movement to unionize campaign workers, including some of my own experience in unionizing the Cynthia Nixon campaign here in New York. You are here today for our Candidates Tell All episode, which is powered by incredible Black women guests. We almost called this the Nightmares from the Campaign Trail episode because we're releasing it on Halloween. And one of our volunteer producers, Guido, had an amazingly ridiculous sound effect full Halloween introduction in mind. But luckily our guests were a little too positive for that to be an honest title. But seriously, running for office is an incredibly strenuous experience. Why do candidates do it? It's really an incredible sacrifice. And we were curious to ask them how they keep themselves grounded along the way and what that campaign trail is really like, particularly when you are running in a system that was not designed for you. The esteemed guests that are joining us today to dish about candidacy and all that it entails include Stacey Abrams, who is the Democratic candidate for governor of Georgia and is telling us about her favorite TV shows and how she stays energized on the campaign trail. Ashley Marie Preston is with us, who is the first transgender candidate to run for state office in California this year. And Ashley tells us about what she learned when taking on the establishment from the inside. And Nalini Stamp is also here, the National Organizing Director of Working Families Party, to share about how she takes care of herself after 10 years on the road supporting candidates and what it takes to select and support great candidates nationwide. This mini-series is sponsored in part by Groundswell Action Fund. I'm here with their Director of Civic Engagement, Kanita Toffee. We are the largest fund in the country centering women of color-led 501c4 work, giving people an easy way to donate to organizations that are not just talking to voters before an election, but are also engaging voters year-round in the ongoing work of advancing real justice and democracy. We are loving hearing more on the podcast about the important work happening at Groundswell Action Fund and with their amazing grantees. Let's hear from one of those grantees now. Greetings, I am Tequila Johnson. This is Charlene Oliver, and we are co-founders of the Equity Alliance. We are here in Tennessee mobilizing communities of color to make sure that we're using our voting power as a weapon in the fight for social justice. The Equity Alliance believes in organizing, mobilizing, and energizing people, so much so that we launched our 
voting is lit campaign to get people excited about using their voice and making our democracy stronger. We're organizing pastors, black women groups all across the state of Tennessee to make sure that we are stronger in numbers at the polls and making sure that change happens when we all work together. Voter education, organizing, voter restoration, and getting out the vote is some of the things that we specialize in. We, meet, we are meeting people where they are. You know, we started this organization because, you know, we saw a need in the community, but we have full-time jobs, we have families, children, but we saw a need. And as black women, we know we get it done and we've got it done. Black women are used to doing a whole lot with a little bit, which is why we think it is extremely important to create time for self-care and spaces for healing. The Equity Alliance in a little over two years has accomplished a lot with minimal resources. You know, as black women, we are fearless, we're relentless, we're resilient. So hashtag bet on black women, bet on us in Tennessee and support our work. There has never been a more critical time to ensure that women of color have the resources to move the change that is needed in these times. Join us and these amazing women by visiting bit.ly forward slash groundswell action. So we have a really fun announcement to share with y'all, some news on behalf of the podcast. We are almost exactly one year old and we're celebrating our birthday by having a party and a live taping show here in Brooklyn, New York in early December. We are nailing down the final details right now, but if you live in or near New York and wanna be part of that event, we would love to have you at the party. Whether you're a good friend of the podcast or of me or any of our guests for a long time, or whether we've never met in person, it would be so fun to hang out with you and get some of the most beloved guests and healing justice leaders up on the stage to record a live show uh, with you there, hanging out with us. Um, and the good news is for the rest of our listeners who don't live close enough to join into that event, uh, no worries. That's why we're taping it and we'll share it with you here on the podcast so you can at least join the party virtually. So if you want to make sure to hear about those details, you can find them in a couple places. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at Healing Justice, Facebook Healing Justice Podcast, Twitter at HJ Podcast, and definitely join our email list. You can join at healingjustice.org slash elections, and we'll make sure that you get an invitation to the party if you're on that email list, healingjustice.org slash elections. So when thinking about the candidate experience, I first called up my friend Nalini Stamp because what starts even before a candidate is running for office is the selection process and the thought process behind who are the right people to run and how do we support them. And so I was really excited to talk to Nalini about this question because she has been with Working Families Party for 10 years. Right now, she's the National Organizing Director, and she works with volunteer leaders across the country to build local progressive infrastructure. I know her because she's deeply involved in social movement work and economic and racial justice work across the country, was on the ground at Occupy Wall Street to help bridge the gap between labor and community-based organizations and Occupy activists back in the day, 
And Nalini also co-created the Freedom Side and Dream Defenders in Florida, which organizes and trains youth in nonviolent civil disobedience, civic engagement, and direct action. Here's the conversation with Nalini. I'm so grateful and excited that you're joining us, particularly because, as usual, you are on the road. Um, can you tell us about where you are today? Yep, I am in uh, Arizona um, in a smaller town outside of Phoenix, um, getting out the vote um, with um, the Working Families Party and Con Mi Gente um, for this campaign called Ganamos Con Garcia, which is trying to get our community to vote for David Garcia for governor. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for hopping into your car and doing this call with us in the middle of GOTV work. Um, and would love to invite you to share just a little bit about who you are and what brought you to this work. Well, I am an organizer. Um, I have been working in electoral politics for about 10 years, mostly a majority with the Working Families Party. Really, the first kind of moment that I knew about elect like doing electoral work was when um, my cousin, um, during the turnstile when I was a kid, he was trying to take me to auditions. I was like an actress when I was younger, paid actress. Um, and he jumped the turnstiles and New York City cops like just kind of like tackled him and then took him away. And I was in the train station for like what felt like an hour by myself because I was young, but probably 10 minutes. Um, I, you know, I remember when I asked somebody why this happened, like later on after he ended up getting out, somebody was, somebody had said Mayor Giuliani. Um, and that's the reason why. And I just knew, and when I got older and started hearing, you know, about broken windows and just the different policies, like it kind of, it was something that stuck with me. And I really got into electoral work because um, it's just something that I believe is like really necessary to do with a social justice perspective and to both be in movement and electoral politics. Yeah, and you've been, I mean, with Working Families Party, you've really gotten to advocate for and support particularly anti-establishment candidates, right? Um, and I'm curious about what that's been like, particularly, you know, being there 10 years, WFP is is different now than it was 10 years ago. And so what has it been like for you to to think about candidate selection and who are the right people to call forward and, and put WFP support behind? Um, what does that look like? What's your thought process on that? For us at Working Families Party, like, we believe um, in identifying, recruiting, and backing candidates to run for office. And in terms of ideal, I don't know if there's any ideal candidate because there's just a lot of things, but in terms of who we look for and who when we identify, we want folks to be a part of movement or a part of some sort of struggle, whether it's community organizing, whether it's a member of a labor union, whether it's, you know, somebody who volunteers in their community, somebody who's actually done some stuff in their community, has heard the concerns of the community and understands what it's like to live in that community and be a part of that community. Um, we are definitely looking for people who aren't necessarily representative, right? We have supported trans, black candidates, Latinx candidates, like across the spectrum, especially this year on us, because we also need to understand that still a large percentage of our elected officials in this country are older white men. Um, and so for us, we're looking for somebody who like, because it's not just about identity, and it's about holding the actual politics that we want 
coming from the community and being engaged for a really long time, and then also making sure there's actual representation in terms of race, gender, and class. Yeah, and what do you think about, I mean, particularly if someone is running who is not, uh, is not like the older white straight male archetype that, that our system was really designed for, um, like someone's running in a system that wasn't designed for them. And then on top of that, anti-establishment candidates and particularly people who have been refusing corporate money, um, what kind of support do they need to run that kind of uphill battle? I think that people, there's a lot of things that people need and it's time and money is the biggest pieces, um, in my opinion. Um, and when I say money, it's, you know, I mean resources, not just like monetary money, but we, you know, we are competing against a Republican machine that has millions, if not a billion dollars, it's just millions, right? Um, <laughs> when folks, they don't take away, they don't take uh, corporate, corporate money and corporate contributions, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to fight that uphill battle because money, you know, gives you stuff like paid canvases and ads and, you know, mailers and T-shirts and just all of the different things that go into running a campaign. But time and money, I think, are the biggest things that you could help with candidates. And time, meaning whether it's an organization like a Working Journalist Party or like many organizations who support candidates out there, whether it's recruiting volunteers for those homes, right, whether it's making sure that every, you know, like in my dream world, you know, when we would endorse a candidate, we would tell all of our members in that district or in that area to sign like a, a pledge saying that this is how many hours I'm volunteering on the campaign as a, as a whole. Um, so time is really, really, really important. Um, getting folks time to actually help and support the candidate. And then money, small dollar contributions that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't come with just one email you send. That takes a lot of work. That takes, you know, people throwing small dollar fundraisers that takes, you know, organizations putting out emails there. It just takes a lot of work to get small dollar contributions um, um, across the board. And it's something that we all need to pay attention to. And so secondary, I would say, is, you know, thinking about creative policy and thinking about platforms. I think we've all seen that there's been a Bernie platform out there. Um, a lot of people call it less. I don't really call it less because it's, uh, it's actually like basic rights, like, free higher education, um, the ability now 15 in the union, um, Medicare for all. These are things that are not super, super left. They're actually like, they're actually values, right? They're values based. And I think we do a disservice by saying that they're left because it, um, the divide in our country is so thick that we should just say what they are, which are values. It should reflect our values. And so, but that it, because, and, and because everybody has been going on the Bernie platform, there are, are some folks who have missed things. So we, there was a really great uh, study case for we recruited in Wisconsin because of the amazing work of the Wisconsin Working Family Party. We recruited Randy Bryce, who is an iron worker, to run for Congress against Paul Ryan when Paul Ryan was still running. Um, and uh, Randy, you know, we put him in touch with one of our organizations, our sister organizations called Trans United Fund, to come up with a really, really great platform that included like making sex work not you know, um, uh, decriminalizing sex work that talked about um, trans and, and like needs for the trans and a gender non-conforming community. And he rolled that out because of our partnership with Trans United Fund. And more people who thought that there was this like, you know, guy from Wisconsin who was an iron worker who really didn't stand up for the LGBTQ 
barbecue community or sex workers, and he came out with that, right? And so I think that's also needed as a secondary, like more robust, think, creative thinking around policy so that people can feel safe, right? Like a lot of electeds don't take positions because they either feel that they're, they're going to be attacked or they feel all types of ways about it. But if you have somebody working with them to, to develop their platform in a way that actually is like representative of people in their district, but also people in this country, that can move them forward as well. I'm, I'm curious, Nalini, in your 10 years of experience, if there's any particular candidate that stands out to you that was like an incredible underdog story or an example of, of someone who had had what it takes or the timing had what it takes and was able to win against all odds. Do you have a favorite? I mean, I think that like there's lots of folks out there um, that come to mind. I would say um, um, Diana Richardson in the state of New York, um, she, she went and she ran as a working families party (laughs) candidate. Um, and is still a Working Families Party uh, candidate to this day. And, and she was the first person to ever be solely uh, the Working Families Party in the state Senate um, in Albany. Diana Richardson was, like, pretty remarkable, right? Mother, uh, Brooklyn girl, just, like, had the Democratic machine up against her, was running on a third-party line and won. And it's been beautiful to uh, watch her. That's probably my favorite, I would say. So conversely, is there a particular candidate that you've supported that stands out in your mind as sort of a a heartbreak story? Like somebody who was really the right thing at the right time, but for whatever reason of obstacles lost. And like, what are some of the things that cause those heartbreaking stories to happen? I would say that a, probably a big heartbreak was when Lucy Flores uh, lost her uh, congressional primary in 2016. Um, it was really sad because she's gone out there and supported Bernie Sanders. Um, she was uplifted by all these women's groups um, for a long time, taken around the country when she, and she's a formerly incarcerated person, like grew up working class, is, is a person of the people, has a lot of the right values, was an amazing state legislator in Nevada. And because there was another white woman in the race, some women's organizations endorsed her because she had more money. And um, and they split the vote and Reuben Kewen won. And it's really sad because there had been rumors about Reuben Kewen um, and him being um, a harasser or an assaulter. And he resigned this year. <laughs> so that was really hard. Um, both like two years ago and this year to kind of see that all play out. Um, Lucy Flores has been a freedom fighter for a really long time. And so that was probably one of the saddest races that I, I ever saw from a father. That kind of story just agitates me even more of like to go out and get really, really, really behind the candidates that I believe in and not be watching from the sidelines um, in the next couple of weeks. And just sort of as we transition together, you know, you have been, I, I think for all of us, there's like a fatigue that comes with election cycle, but you have been constantly working with candidates um, for the past 10 years. You have a rigorous travel schedule. Um how do you take care of yourself? What are the supports that you have or what keeps you going in this work, Nalini? I mean, I think that it's really important for um, for folks who work on elections to understand to, like, 
like understanding the cycle that it's a cycle and understanding like when to take off and when not right like you know for me i can't i can't actually function as a human being if i take more than a few days off before an election because it just i i, I the amount of work that people put into it the amount of work that other folks do is just like my practice but what i do is i say okay this is the off season like for instance i have a whole month and a half that i'm taking to recharge and go to Europe in February um, when there's not really that much activity going on. I did, you know, I took um, two weeks in between the early primaries and the late primaries to go to Europe and to have a vacation, extra four-day weekend. So, like, I, I basically look at it as, like, a year thing and saying, okay, how do I actually balance my energy through the year? Like, I've committed myself to electoral politics. It's not made for everybody, but it, it does, it, 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 it is, a specific commitment that you have to make and especially since we are going up against people who don't have people who don't have the money and the resources like time is of everything i appreciate that i have listened to my body and i take time off when i know it makes sense <laughs> thanks for being with us nalini as nalini raised up it's really important for us to put all of our resources, our time, our labor, our hope, and our money behind the projects, the candidates, the strategies that we believe in. It is not too late to give a donation to a candidate that's really inspiring you this election cycle, or to give to Groundswell Action Fund, our sponsor to support women of color-led C4 work that are that is supporting the right candidates. Um, and also, it's important to show some support to this project. If this surviving election series has been useful to you, um, or if you listen to the practices and uh, the conversations that we offer earlier in the podcast over the last year, um, consider showing some reciprocity. Even a few bucks a month really makes a difference for us, particularly now at the end of the year when we're in our fundraising drive and making some really serious decisions about what this project can do in 2019 based on the resources we have. If you came in for the Surviving Election series and haven't seen the other stuff that we've produced over the past year, take a look back. And it might be extra fun to listen to episode 30 right now with Resistance Revival Chorus because Nalini was one of the co-founders of Resistance Revival Chorus. So you get to hear this whole other side of what she creates in the world through her voice and her creativity um, and hear her sisters uh, from the chorus talk about those stories of how the chorus was founded in episode 30. So if you would like to show some support, if you're in a position to do so, we greatly appreciate it. You can do that at patreon.com slash healing justice. Again, that address is patreon.com slash healing justice. We so appreciate your gifts. This is an all volunteer run project. It's nonprofit effort. Uh, and we just really care about bringing these stories to you and hope we can raise the funds to pay for our costs to continue to do so next year. So next, I was so excited to meet Ashley Marie Preston. Ashley Marie Preston is a civil rights activist, a media personality, producer, writer, and a speaker. And she's historically the first trans woman to become an editor-in-chief of a national publication. 
We're mostly talking about how she was recently a candidate for California State Assembly District 54. She was the first openly trans person to run for California State Legislature. And she uses media to galvanize political participation, talks about her experience in running for office in a system that wasn't built for us, and why she actually chose to withdraw her candidacy and what her message is now for the political establishment. Here she is. Hi, Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. We are so grateful that you're here, um, and there is so much to say about you, uh, but just want to start out on a little bit of a lighter note uh, about your recent tweet that's going viral. Can you tell us about it? <laughs> what I was thinking was, what would it look like if we were able to get the younger uh, voter or, or potential voter to be just as excited about the election and about who their electeds are going to be as they are on the next episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians or the whole Kanye uh, extravaganza that's been happening. So I went to Twitter um, and I tweeted, I said, well, it's official. Kim Kardashian finally decided to divorce Kanye West. And I put a link there, uh, um, a bit.ly link. And so when they clicked the link, it automatically goes to the voter registration site. And so, it, <laughs> so it's almost like Rick rolled, but kind of like Paul rolled. There were some people that were actually like, this actually showed me that I can register online and I didn't know that. So there were actually people who registered over the poll roll. That is amazing. Um, and I feel like that's something that you have done really well, actually, is to like, straddle pop culture and mainstream media and also convert it in a very serious and accountable way to what is happening politically and your activism. Um, and I would love if you could just give us a little bit of an intro of who you are and also why you decided to run for office earlier this year. A little bit about my backstory. I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I came out to Los Angeles in 2004, January 3rd, 9.36 a.m. I couldn't get here quick enough. Like, I know the time, all of that. And I quickly found my community. I didn't have a word to describe trans identity. I knew that I was assigned male at birth, but I knew that I didn't feel like the other little boys. And at nine years old, I actually started developing breasts and like things were happening to my body without me having to take direct action toward it. And so when I got to California, I was excited because I could finally be who I was openly and authentically. And I finally had language to describe it. And I was just excited about life. What I didn't expect was for society to not be as affirming and for there to be barriers um, that came as an impediment to my progress. So I started being discriminated against at work, um, which then led to me being fired um, because it's much easier to get rid of the liability than it is to shift our social culture in the workplace. I became homeless. I couldn't get into shelters because men's shelters wouldn't take me obviously, because I look completely uh, female presenting, even without makeup. Like I 
look like a cisgender woman. Women's shelters wouldn't take me because of my assigned sex at birth. And so I had to turn to street economy. So I was a survival sex worker. I used uh, methamphetamine as a social lubricant to help me navigate that level of survival. And my story ends really uh, miraculously in that I have all my mental uh, faculties in order. I don't have a record. Um, and I'm HIV negative and all of these things that uh, directly impact marginalized communities who are put at risk. And what then led you to decide running for office would be a good next step for the work that you care about? Oh my gosh. I think November of 2016 was a very difficult time for a lot of people, especially my generation. I feel every generation has a major, um, has a major moment that defines the movement. Um, and I, I, w- I want to say I was shocked, but not really. Um, a lot of my friends, typically white women who were like, I cannot believe this is happening. Like he quite literally was talking about grabbing women by the genitals and promulgating rape culture. And yet he was still sworn in. And so what I began to realize at that point, as I saw Trump (laughs) being sworn in, was that no one's coming to save us. No one's coming to save women. No one is coming to save people of color. No one is coming to save trans or LGB folks. No one is coming to save trans people. Like it's, 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 it was that moment where it was like, this is your civic and social responsibility to get engaged. And if you do nothing, nothing will happen. I also have a huge distrust for the establishment um, because, again, going back to what I shared about the nonprofit industrial complex and the ways in which um, movements are derailed, monitored, and controlled through federal funding, in many cases, um, these elected officials who are career politicians, they're not going to risk their own livelihood or, or sustainability for those that they claim to represent. That is just the hard fact that people are, for whatever reason, not willing to get honest about. And so for me, um, because I didn't have a horse in that race, because I wasn't um, operating from within the belly of the beast, I felt that it was an opportunity for me to speak truth to power in a way that people haven't quite frankly, um, most of my generation, I'm a millennial, and even Gen Zers who are getting more engaged in the political landscape have found that it's deeply boring. It's unrelatable. Um, We talk about voter suppression in a way that, oh, they're trying to keep us from voting. But another tool is to have these conversations around politics so highbrow that no one even understands what you're talking about. You almost need um, an academic degree to be able to scratch the surface. And so what I set out to do with the support of a couple of friends was um, to translate, if you will, to have these same conversations in our own language, in the way that we speak on an everyday basis, and to really um, unpack what's happening in a way that makes it real for people so they know that this may sound like this incident or this um this change that's happening off on another planet, but really it directly impacts you and it directly affects you. And even if it doesn't happen today, it will make its way directly to you. So in January, you announce your candidacy for California's 
54th district for state assembly, right? Yes, it was a special election. Uh Aha, in a special election cycle. Um, And your platform was amazing. I just want to shout out like a platform of tackling police brutality, rape culture, trans discrimination, and to work on immigration. Um, And that you were also positioned to run as the first out transgender candidate for statewide office, which is amazing. And I know you mentioned the support of a few friends. I'm curious about what were some of the other supports that made you feel like, hey, like I can really do this. I can run a campaign. And then and then what changed, right? Um, here's the deal. So there were a lot of people who were excited about the prospect of California's first trans um, candidate to run for California state legislature or state office. So there were a lot of people who were supportive and who were excited about it. Um, There was a lot of uh, moral support. I think that really, to be honest, I'm just the kind of person that's never needed permission to do, uh, to drive my purpose. I've just never, in fact, I'm the complete opposite. I'm the person who's not afraid to go against the grain. I think there's this idea that even in the activist space, we're all a monolith. And we all kind of like have these like talking points and we're all on the same page. And that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. There were actually activists that were like, why would you even want to uh, navigate that space? Because that space is quite directly uh, responsible for some of the struggles that we're up against. Because um, again, there's this um, Zora Neale Hurston quote in which he said, uh, not all skin folk or uh, not all kin folk or skin folk or something to that effect. And for me, I've always said not everybody LGBTQ is always for you. So there were even within spaces that would seem uh, uh, progressive, they weren't supporting me the way that they would support maybe white LGBTQ candidates. And trans people historically have always been the last on the totem pole to receive our support in our leadership, even though quite literally through Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, we kicked off the LGBTQ movement that led us to the liberties and rights that we have today. And so it was really uncomfortable that while, yes, there was support from some friends and yes, there was support from the cis heteronormative um, community, people weren't turned up and revved up about California's first trans candidate the way they were turned up and revved up about whether or not they can get a wedding cake made at a bakery of their choice. And so what I got to see right out the gate was what Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw has been talking about since 1989 around intersectionality and how um, it describes uh, multiple threats of discrimination when an individual's identity overlaps with multiple marginalized groups. So just being LGBTQ wasn't enough to really support me and push me all the way through across the finish line. Being a woman wasn't enough because there were many, um, 2018, 2017 even, it's been the year of, of women in politics and celebrating women, supporting women, showing up for women and inspiring leadership among women. But it was an opportunity for us to reevaluate what our definition of being a woman is because there were many people that did not see me as a woman. And there were people that actually saw me as an impediment to the progressive women's movement because they felt that I was just an extension of the patriarchy and that I was stealing opportunities from quote unquote real women. And so it was a really um, uncomfortable, painful, uh, truthful look 
into not only uh, liberal or progressive spaces, but the Democratic Party. The fact that California, who is seen as a, um, as a thought leader, as a cultural thought leader in uh, progressive politics, could be the last across the finish line to look at diversity through the lens of how other people would see it in other states, especially since there were trans people getting elected and winning seats all over the country. I just didn't really have that kind of support. So I had to take a non-traditional route because what I also found even with the uh, campaign managers and people who do campaigns for a living, they're used to a cookie cutter model. They're not used to having to tailor these uh, campaigns. They're just used to taking the same easy route, mailers. And then you go to the local community churches and you, and you get the churches to support you, which as a trans woman, that was a little bit of a barrier because whereas other people who were running had access there, there were people that were right out the gate shut down to me because my identity and my livelihood is in direct opposition of their personal beliefs. That's a lot. <laughs> um, and just want to sit with you in it for a moment around like how totally unfortunate it, it is to not yet have the supports available um, to support the very people that we desperately need running for office in this country right now. Um, and I'm curious about, I mean, it must have been an incredibly hard decision to actually make the call to say, you know what, we're going to call off this race actually. Um, I can't imagine like if there's, you know, not even to mention all of your goals and all the things you wanted to do through the race and also just embarrassment of like, I don't know, did it feel embarrassing to you or, or how did that decision go? It was, it was uncomfortable because there were so many people who were rooting for me, but the reality is that the people that had the money weren't always giving up the money. It was the people who didn't really have anything. It was the people who were only dollars away from getting that notice on their door. It was the people who have to work 50, 60 hours just to get what the average American gets in 40 hours of work and sometimes even 30. It was the people that had children. It was the people who had disabilities. It was the people on a fixed income. It was the people who didn't even know how they were going to show up for themselves who were showing up for me. And I felt that, again, going back to leadership, leadership doesn't just happen once you win the election. Leadership is happening from the moment you step up and decide to represent your community. And so I had a responsibility to those people that were giving me their all to make sure that I also protected their investment. And so I couldn't see, like, I'm really good with numbers and I'm really good with projection, uh, with projecting like into the future, like trends. And there came a point when I began to realize that um, if I try to fight this and keep pushing this, the way that it's set up against me, it's not going to, I'm going to kind of, um, I'm going to use all these resources that I know won't get us the end result we're trying to get. The other thing that happened that I'm actually uh, legally limited to what I can say right now, but there was a slew of dirty tricks that were played and my campaign was sabotaged from the inside. And there were, I mean, when I tell you, I was actually on a plane on my way to go speak at Yale um, and there were some meet and greets set up for me. And I got a phone call from some people from my team who was like, we don't know how this happened, 
but there was some paperwork that wasn't done right and there's no reason it shouldn't have been. And now you're not going to be able to actually be on the ballot. You can do a write-in and you can do all this other stuff. And there comes a point when, once again, it's like you've already had these hurdles where the people who are your largest supporters don't always have the economic resources to be able to support. In fact, one of my things that I was also talking about during the election was um, money being in politics. Money has no place, quite frankly, in politics. I don't understand who, like, what I still, to this day, don't understand somebody's ability to raise money, how that translates into being a viable candidate. When you have people who are, you know, lawyers and attorneys, and of course you're going to be able to, to wing that and work those relationships in a way that maybe the community activist can, although she has more connections, more understanding of um, how things work. She's not uh, living up in the ritzy part of the neighborhood that most of them are. I'm not coming from a place of privilege, but I'm coming from a place of first person perspective. I have been directly impacted by the things that the constituency has been directly impacted by. I have seen it firsthand. I'm not just promulgating or like spreading these stories that my campaign team came up with so I can sound connected and personable and performative. It's like, no, like I know her because I saw her when she had to bury her son. I saw them when they had to go figure out how they were going to work through their trauma from being raped by a police officer. I have been there when people's parents who've lived in a home for 45 years have got their stuff set out on the curb and they had no idea where they were going to go or what their next move was going to be. I have seen immigrant families work and toil and slave away and not have their humanity respected and not have our communities willing to take care of their children the way that they have helped take care of us. And so it's these everyday stories, the, 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 the convicted felon that's trying to get out of jail and prison and they get out and then there's no resources. We're not having the conversation around recidivism. We're not giving them the opportunity. We're setting them up for failure because the prison industrial complex is a huge profit model. And so they stand to benefit directly from these uh, typically uh, men and women of color who are uh, going through uh, reincarceration. And so these were things that I was talking about that my, uh, that other candidates were not for. They were not for that. I was literally bringing people together to stop me because of the simple fact that it was going to hold them all accountable. And I was asking questions and, and, and kicking off conversations that, the constituents would say, yes, that. What are we going to do about that? But no one was ready for that. We were all still stuck in 1973 in pageantry mode, and we're all still chanting world peace. That's so clear. That's so unbelievably clear. And, and given that experience, I'm curious what you would say. Oh, we are, we're in so much need right now of people running anti-establishment campaigns, um, running them winning them, losing them, you know, like whatever happens, getting that leadership out there and starting to really mobilize and demonstrate the fact that this is possible. We particularly need black people, people of color, LGBTQ folks, women um, to be supported to run, right, and to win. Um, given the way the system is set up, that's a really uphill battle. And so I'm curious, based on your experience, what you would say to people from those communities who are 
thinking about maybe running for office? What, what advice would you give? What would you say? So here's what, so I'm not actually going anywhere. All they did was poke the hornet's nest. That's all they did with the games. Because if I'm being honest with myself, part of me ever wondered if I was meant to be, I just needed to run so that I could see what was really happening behind the scenes. So I can see who the real players are and where the real pitfalls lie. Even the fact that in my district, I believe it was like 443,000 people in that district. And I'm like, we need smaller districts where people can actually have an opportunity to run for these seats because they're running in these districts that that are overpopulated. They're too large. And so the only people who are going to have access to it are the people that have the larger names and the larger capital. Um, But what I did immediately was I started putting together um, a blueprint for how I wanted to work my political action committee. Um, It's called Dignity Pact. I'm in the process uh, in registering uh, with the Federal Elections Commission. And so the reason why I felt that it's important to work that aspect of it is because one of the things that this current administration did well is that they were able to fund their bigotry. We need to learn how to align our politics with our pockets. And so I have a lot of uh, wealthy uh, philanthropist friends. I know a lot of celebrities, people in entertainment, people all over the place. And so what this opportunity um, allows me to do is mobilize all of these resources and all of these people and lead them to the candidates who are really going to be able to make the change necessary. And I want it to be people who aren't your traditional candidate. Um, Dignity Pack is all about restoring dignity to, to, to broken communities. Um, it's about empowering not just women, but women of color, specifically trans people, um, even people from immigrant families who may be uh, first, second generation, who have an opportunity to share a voice that not everyone has heard before. Because when we have women and people of color, even they're not always for us in these spaces. So they're actually an extension. They're a microcosm of that which we're trying to dismantle at the macro level. And no one wants to call it out because they're afraid that they'll be seen as not standing in solidarity with women or they're not standing in solidarity with people of color or they're not standing in solidarity uh, with the Democratic Party. But it's like funding people who are bold enough and courageous enough to step outside of that and to um, shake it up and hold people accountable. You say that it comes naturally to you to go against the grain. Your passion is clear, your stamina is clear, your political platform is clear. But I'm curious, you know, what do you do being out there every day doing this work to take care of yourself, to get the support that you need? Because you are a precious resource to us. Um, And so, yeah, what do you do to take care of yourself and how can we support you? I just took my first vacation, actually. I, I just got back from Hawaii. Um, I was in um, Oahu, and I was in Waikiki. Like, I, I had never taken a vacation before because, A, I had never really had the resources, and, B, I didn't really understand the importance of self-care until this current administration took seat. The gaslighting and the traumatic things that happen on a daily basis really forced me to take a step back um, and to practice self-care directly because I can't transmit something I haven't got. You know, it's like if I don't know how to show up for myself and care for myself and practice sustainability within my own life, what is that? Like, what do I look like trying to um, 
extend that that possibility to others. Um, and really, what I'm doing more so these days is I'm I found power in collaboration. And so what my personal self-care looks like is allowing other communities, other people, other game changers and thought leaders to come in and help carry some of that load. Because I've always felt like most of my life that no one was coming to help me. No one would understand me. Even when we're saying Black Lives Matter, they typically don't include trans people. So it's this entirely um, different. It's about stepping outside of catch-all advocacy that doesn't catch all of us. In fact, many of us fall through the cracks. And it's about really getting specific about uh, taking care of those who are the most vulnerable within our communities, because when we're liberated, so will everyone else. When you talk about healing, about inviting in collaboration, and also about the fact that our our healing is political. I guess part of self-care is realizing that given the social and political climate, you can't put off your happiness and your joy just because you haven't reached the end goal. Because I'm convinced that every generation is going to be faced with those same injustices and they show up in different ways and and they manifest in different forms. Um, But this is going to be a beautiful opportunity to, especially when you're talking about like Muslim Americans and certain people that quite honestly, their faith and their beliefs aren't always um, in alignment with trans identity, LGBTQ kind of. So it's also building allyship. These self-care is about having community and how I have community is by speaking up and building a platform in which people can be seen and heard so that we can support uh, one another. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Oh my God, thank you for having me. It is so refreshing to get to speak with someone as clear and direct as Ashley Marie Preston. And another experience of that kind of special clarity that I had recently was getting to meet Stacey Abrams, who is the Democratic nominee for the governor of Georgia. Meeting Leader Abrams was so awesome. I went to this event at The Wing in Soho, and it was part of their Midterms on Our Terms series. Shout out to the crew that's been organizing this incredible lineup of political conversations uh, by women, for women, that has been happening here in New York. And it was 8.30 in the morning, and hundreds of women showed up to hear Leader Abrams speak. Um, The crowd was super excited and I was so impressed by both how polished and politically astute and also at the same time unbuttoned and honest and real uh, Leader Abrams was able to be. That is really a feat to be able to hold both and I feel like you're going to hear that in the clip coming up. I was able to ask her a question on this panel and she and her team gave me the okay to share it with you here. And I just wanna share a little bit about her bio before you hear her speak because I feel like she's holding this incredible range of what it is to be an awesome woman running for office in 2018. 
So she's the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia. She's the former House Democratic leader, and she also founded the New Georgia Project, which submitted more than 200,000 registrations from voters of color between 2014 and 2016. Also, she writes under the pen name Selena Montgomery and is an award-winning author of eight romantic suspense novels, which have sold more than 100,000 copies. So she writes these romantic suspense novels under this sexy name, Selena Montgomery, and also is an author of the best-selling memoir and how-to book, Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change. You'll hear her here talking about what really energizes her to keep going, how she takes care of herself, um, why she is so impassioned to be taking great risk and making great sacrifice to run for office right now in Georgia, um, and also be silly and talk about the TV shows that she loves. So that's enough from me. Imagine that you're joining us in the wing at 8.30 in the morning, packed in with hundreds of women so excited to hear from Leader Abrams. And we'll drop into that room now. I'm thinking about the schedule that you're keeping and the super intense work that you have to do between now and November and like the impossible things that we expect from our politicians to be everywhere and know everything and be perfect all the time. And I'm curious about how are you taking care of yourself and because you are a precious resource that we need to keep going, whether you win or not, right? Um, so what are the things that you're doing to like not let this process chew you up and spit you out? I'm gonna cry for a second. Now, <laughs> yeah, look, I, I have an extraordinary team around me that helps make things work. But yes, my day starts before the sun comes up, and I go home very, very late. I'm very excited when they tell me my, my wake up time is 7:30, not 6:30. Um, but I read a lot. I love books. I love to read. It makes me very happy. I watch an inordinate amount of television. <laughs> laugh. Uh, I am so excited about the good place starting again. <laughs> I love Blackish. I will be. I'm currently on episode seven of. Although you know, I know it's a bit controversial, but I'm watching the the um, Channel Four version of the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> I mean, look, I miss Mary Berry, but. <laughs> Paul is still cute. Paul is still cute. And so, you know, and Liam's doing really well so far. So I need to see what happens there. Uh, I watch Supernatural like it is a religion. Um, and I watch a lot of uh, a lot of syndicated shows because I love television. I love pop culture. That's uh, not pop culture. I love television. It makes me very happy. Uh, so I, but also I'm the second of six children. And I have extraordinary siblings and amazing parents. Uh, my little sister Janine, a few weeks ago, I'm not. I'm only allowed to drive myself like on weekends when I'm sneaking away from the, the protection detail. I don't sneak away from protection detail. <laughs> <laughs> but there are certain days of the week I'm allowed to get in my car and drive it, which I miss. And I was hungry, and everything was closed. So I went to Taco Bell. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But she called, so I have to call someone when I'm by myself because my siblings are protective. And so I get home, and my sister, who has two little boys and a husband and lives about 40 minutes from me, went grocery shopping and brought me food so that I would have something in my house to eat. 
And I'm like, why are you here? Aren't you, why aren't you, why shouldn't you be putting your kids to bed? And she's like, I listened to you sit in a driveway at Taco Bell for an hour. Like, you need real food. So, so my siblings take care of me too. My, um, there's an energy to running though, that while it is hard and it's difficult having people lie about you and spend millions of dollars to do it, it is hard to be told that you cannot have something because of who you are and what you look like. There is something joyous in going to Brantley County, I went to the 159th County, and sit in this tiny church in Nahunta, Georgia, uh, with 55 folks who in the middle of the day showed up because they just wanted to meet the person who could possibly help their lives get better. There's something that is not only energizing, refreshing, but grounding about that. I get to be the name on the ballot, but my victory is our victory. My success is our success. And there is no stronger a driver than the belief that I truly can do the things we talk about. I can make these things so. I can help folks like my brother. I can make sure that people like my parents who are raising their grandchildren have services and access. I can make certain that folks who desert Marietta to move to New York because they're confused and lost want to come back. And there is something that is profoundly gratifying that creates an energy that makes it more human. Wow, that, Thank you. what a big fan. <laughs> Thank you so much. So as we enter into the final Get Out the Vote weekend before the 2018 midterm elections here in the United States, we're sending you out with the joy and motivation of connecting with people, of working for something that you care deeply about, and moving every fiber of our beings toward the future that we all deserve. Next week, we'll be back with a post-election reflection, releasing on November 7th, the day after the election, I'm so excited about this episode. It's been really fun to prepare it. And part of it, we're going to be recording that very morning and turning around to give to you that day. We'll be hearing from Barbara Dudley, who's an incredible elder in this work and role model. She was part of the founding of Working Families Party. She was a lawyer for the Black Panthers. She was the executive director of Greenpeace, uh, part of the women's movement through multiple different waves. Super exciting to hear from her about what this political cycle means in the context of a lifetime of political shifts. And we'll also be hearing from Alexandra Rojas, who is the executive director of Justice Democrats at just 23 years old and was part of the committee that recruited and prepared Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to run and really represents the interest and uh, representation of the new American electorate. And so hearing from these uh, ends of the spectrum, as well as talking to Maurice Mitchell from Working Families Party on the morning after the election about what the results mean for our movements and how we can sustain ourselves uh, emotionally and politically through victory and loss. So we're excited to be with you next week on that morning after the election. Save just a tiny bit of energy to be with us, yeah? 
And as we go out, we're so grateful to our sponsor, Groundswell Action Fund, for their incredible work. Again, please consider donating to support them and also helping donate to sustain this project at patreon.com slash healingjustice. Thank you to Nalini Stamp, Ashley Marie Preston, and Stacey Abrams for joining us today. You can join our email list to get election survival tips right to your inbox at healingjustice.org elections. That's also how you'll get the invitation to come to our live taping and one year birthday party happening here in Brooklyn in December. Thank you so much for taking the time to reflect, to think strategically, to move with power and take action and to put your effort into showing up in whatever way is feeling right to you around these midterms. I personally am going to be packing it up into the car and driving with my housemates and my partner down to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania to volunteer and knock doors on the Jess King campaign. Some of you may have heard Becca Rast, the campaign manager there, speak on the second episode in this series. And uh, it's time for me to get out into the field and put my effort out there for the last weekend before the elections. I wish you well if you're doing the same or however you're choosing to participate. A big thank you to Rachel Ishikawa and Zach Meyer at The Coal Room for editing this episode. And thank you to Park Ballantine and Guido Giorgenti for production support for the whole series. We'll hear you next week.